That was El Elefante de Mocos from the band Waka Jawaka. It appears on their album Introducing Waka Jawaka, and it appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. This is episode number 47 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to this podcast where we have part two of our discussion with author Stephen D. Sullivan about his novelization of the classic Bela Lugosi zombie film, White Zombie. You know, I think I made this clear in part one of our discussion with Steve, but White Zombie is such an important, iconic film. Without White Zombie, I believe that we would not have zombie movies as they are known today. Sure, the zombies that we have today are all brain eaters or flesh eaters or maybe shamble because they're dead or they run around because they're sick and pissed. Whatever. Thing is, zombie cinema started as kind of a voodoo thing, and I really enjoy having a little bit of magic in with my undead. I love having the voodoo element. I love having the supernatural element. And White Zombie does this in spades. I love this film. And I'm actually kind of jealous that I didn't think of the idea to adapt White Zombie before Stephen D. Sullivan did. He took this film and recreated it as a work of fiction, as a novel in prose form, he tells the story of White Zombie, and I could not help but hear Bella Lugosi's accent whenever I read the dialogue of murder. It's such a great book. I'm really excited to share part two of our discussion with Stephen D. Sullivan with the Monster Kid Radio listeners. Before we get into that, a little bit of business real quick. Head over to MonsterKidRadio.net for links to everything that we're going to talk about in this show. There will be links to Waka Jawaka, obviously a link to Steve's website, as well as how you can get a hold of us. Click on the contact button and you'll find our email address, MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Or call us at 503 479 Five MKR. Leave me a voicemail if you have any thoughts about anything that we've talked about here on the show in the past, or have suggestions for things that you'd like us to talk about in the future. Let me know. Also, I'm planning a special feedback episode down the line. Steve himself has already called in some feedback. I'd love to add your voice to the mix, and then I'll do a special feedback show in the future. Also in the future, as I've mentioned in the past, I'd like to launch a special supplemental regular podcast as part of the Monster Kid Radio Network. But in order to do this, I'm challenging you, the listeners, to head over to our iTunes store and give us an honest review. Once we get to 50 reviews in the iTunes store, I will start making arrangements to launch this new regular podcast as part of the Monster Kid Radio Network. I've started to work out some of the details already, and I think you guys and gals are going to dig it. That's all I'm going to say. We get closer to the 50 review mark, and maybe I'll tell you more. Last week on Monster Kid Radio, we had sculptor, returning guest, and all-around great guy Tom Bigler on the show to talk about the 1966 film Island of Terror, starring Peter Cushing, my man. I love this movie. I love the conversation that I had with Tom, and I love the fact that he has donated another piece of artwork for a contest for Monster Kid Radio listeners to enter. Here's the deal. Head over to monsterkidradio.net, go to our website, check out episodes 44 and 45 of the podcast. The images of those episodes are close-ups of the sculpture. So you can see what it is. Now, this is not just a bust. This is a diorama. There are multiple silicates. That's the monster from Island of Terror. And if you didn't already know that, shame on you. Go watch the movie. There are multiple silicates set up here. One is doing something really kind of gross. It's a great-looking diorama. It's a contest. It's a drawing. Here's how you enter. When we were chatting, Tom compared Island of Terror to a somewhat recent monster movie. And we're going to play off of that idea. 
Email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, your name, your mailing address, and the name of a monster movie within the past 10 years, a recent movie within the past 10 years that you think monster kids should see. Pretty simple. We're going to take entries until the end of the month. November 30th is the cutoff date for this. So get your emails in. Only one entry per person, and I've already got a handful of entries. So if you want in on this, send in your entry ASAP. Okay, I've kept you guys and gals waiting long enough. Why don't we go ahead and dive into part two of our discussion with Stephen D. Sullivan about his new novel, White Zombie, right after this. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune in to B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. This is Jackie Ray Naiman-Jones. I play Debbie in Monos, The Hands of Fate. And you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. We mentioned, or at least I mentioned earlier, that with a novel you can play on the five senses as opposed to the two you get with a film. But I'd even maybe say there's a sixth sense you can play within the novel, and that's you can get into the sense of, well, maybe it's a stretch, but you get into the character's thoughts. Right. And one of the, for lack of a better term, issues that people might have with White Zombie is that because of the staginess and the melodramatics and that sort of thing, it's kind of hard to get into some of these main characters as people. They're moving around doing these things, going through these actions, but they're not real people to me unless I'm really paying attention. I don't know if that makes sense, but like Dr. Bruner you mentioned, or Neil specifically, is very wooden through a lot of the movie. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have that. I would think coming from a more modern perspective, that kind of a disconnect. One of the things that I like with your novel is that you've gone through and you've given everybody life. You've given everybody a story that happened before the movie started. You feel like they're real people kind of, which I suppose you want to do with all the novels you write, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you've gone through and you've given these characters real depth. And I'm curious, did you do much research outside of the movie to try to give these characters more than just, well, they're a character in White Zombie, so they got to be in my book. Yeah, yeah, to some extent I did. One of the first decisions I had to make when I was doing the, the novelization was whether I was going to do it in a, a modern way or whether I was going to do it in the 1930s way. In the 1930s, when a lot of people that I 
greatly admire and who are my writing heroes were working like Edgar Rice Burroughs and Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. During that period of time, most novels were written from kind of a, uh, a third-person omniscient point of view in which you could start a chapter telling people what Neil thought and then have what Murder Legendre thought and then have what Dr. Bruner thought. And all of that would just kind of meld into one long, flowing, continuous point of view switch. And when I read those kind of books, generally I think it works very well for them. But that is not the way we do novels nowadays. Nowadays, the, the accepted practice is to pick a point of view and stick with it until you either have a chapter break or a scene break. And one of my original dilemma when I started working up samples with this was whether I should do that omniscient narrator style or whether I should do a point of view style. And so I chose the point of view style because that's a more modern style. I thought it would be more accessible to readers, especially with something like this that has kind of this arch melodramatic feel to it that would be off-putting to some people. So I chose to do the each chapter in White Zombie is from a single point of view of one of the characters in White Zombie. And the, the main characters that are the point of view characters are Madeline and Neil and Murder Legendre and Charles Beaumont, who's the plantation owner. And so every chapter, you get to see what's going on from that person's point of view. So, for instance, the chapter that's the funeral is from Beaumont's point of view. And when you break out the point of view that way, it kind of forces you to think about how the character perceives this scene and how they perceive it is based on who they are and what their past life experience is. So when we start the book, we're with Madeline in her point of view. And Madeline is a gal that grew up in New York City in the 1930s. So she is she's of the era of flappers and prohibition. And that was kind of a more sexually liberated era when people were kind of going out and trying to achieve their goals and kind of be the best that they could be in a way that was different from people just 10 or 20 years earlier. So when writing her point of view, she's going from this cosmopolitan city where there's a little bit of sexual freedom, there's a lot of hustle and bustle, and suddenly she has gone down to Haiti to marry her fiancé, who used to live in the city. But now they're in this kind of weird, jungle-like, agrarian society, this kind of, I don't want to say primitive in a bad way, but that's the word that's springing in my mind. They're in, in a more primitive society. And suddenly there's this city girl that's riding through the jungle in the middle of the night, and the carriage stops because there's a funeral in the middle of the road. And so I try to think how she would deal with that kind of stuff, and also how she would deal with the fact that there are two men competing for her attention. There's her fiancé, who she's come down here to marry. And then there's this really charming rich guy that she's met on the boat as she's going from New York and her old life down to Haiti, and her new life. So when you're thinking about those kind of things, it naturally gives you a little more depth on the characters than perhaps you would get in the movie, where all you can judge them by is 
what they say to each other and how they look at each other and those kind of surfacey things. Point of view allows you to get deeper inside the emotions of the people. Now, the the hazard of doing that, especially in a um, in a story like this, is it is very melodramatic. So one of the things that my readers and and uh, my wife, who's one one of my editors, would come back and say is like, stop the melodrama so much. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to have them thinking this this uh and adding to the heightened melodrama of the book now there there certainly is going to be some heightened melodrama there, but being able to tone that back because as a writer, I don't want to say I'm chameleon, but I try to suit my writing style to the material that I'm working with, so uh when I'm doing something like this, I'll have a different style than when I'm doing Daikaiju attack. And it was funny, I ran through, there's a, a site online where you can run writing samples through, and it tells you who you're writing like Oh yeah. in that given sample. And I ran, I think, five samples of my writing from five very different pieces through this thing, and every time I came up with a different writer. <laughs> you're, you're writing like Douglas Adams, you're writing like Stephen King, you're writing like Martha Mitchell, you're writing like, is it Martha Mitchell, the one that did Gone with the Wind? You're writing like Dan Brown. And so, for me, I kind of get into the headspace, and then if the characters are hand-wringing, then I'm going to hand-wring. <laughs> so, one of the important parts of the editorial process is to tone that back, mm-hmm. and hopefully no, not go over the top with it. Sure. Um, because, again, you want to play to a modern audience. I did appreciate the different point of view changes because it does allow you to kind of hop around Haiti to follow the story. And you get the different filters through which to see the events through the different characters. So you were talking about how each character is going to kind of view things differently. And it does allow – I think you said the word richer. It does allow a more rich – view of what's happening of the characters that sort of thing then you get in the movie because the movie you know it's a 1930s film so it is going to be a little standoffish as well just because that's how those movies were made back then so the book does tend to get more in depth with some of these things and there's something else that i wanted to comment on regarding that in the movie there's a vulture that shows up every once in a while mm-hmm. i loved that and this is supposed to be promoting your book and i know i'm kind of fawning right now <laughs> but i loved that you make it crystal clear without hitting us over the head that the vulture is more than just a really cool element to put in the background of a movie. That the vulture is basically murders. I don't know if I want to say, I don't want to spoil it, but he's, there's a connection they're, here, a more connected. thematic connection that I really appreciated in your book that I didn't necessarily get from the movie on first watch. That's one of those things where that connection is in the movie. Right. But it's not—it's not really made clear in the movie. It's—it's it's like they started to go there, but then they got distracted and ended up doing something else with their plot elements. And as I was working on it and reviewing that, I thought I can tie that in a little better than they did. Um, maybe the original script had been tied in better. You know, it's hard to say what makes it into the final film versus what was originally on the page. I don't have the original pages; I just have my recreation. But as I was working through, I thought. I can just tie that together a little better. I can make that connection a little more clear. And hopefully, when you get there's a payoff at the end that isn't quite paid off in the movie. Hopefully, when you get to the little payoff at the end, you go, oh, that's that's kind of cool. I, yeah. I like that. I didn't see that. And that was something that it was almost implied in the movie. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. It never got more than implied. It never got. It never became really clear what they were doing. And again, that's I talked about 
uh, and being the novelizer, being the, the one that's doing the novel, trying to explain things that are not maybe clear in the film as you see it on film. Because film is a succession of, of moving images and scenes and can utilize a lot of film um, vocabulary and grammar and cuts and, and juxtaposition and placement, sometimes there are things that, get, that fall through the, the cuts, things that get left on the cutting room floor or things that don't quite get fully developed. And as someone that's doing a novelization, you can fill that out and you can explain it and you can hopefully tie it together and give, I hope when people read this, they will have a fuller appreciation of the movie and what the movie is doing than they would have perhaps if they just watched the movie once and never read the book. I got that vibe. It'd be a great double feature. I mean, it's a great complimentary piece. I think the film and the novel now complement each other incredibly well, as opposed to just the book servicing the novel. I feel like they are both equally great examples of this 30s-style kind of horror monster movie kind of thing. You've got this pre-Romero zombie element in your novel, which I think, sadly, we don't have enough of in zombie culture today. Anyway, oh, I agree. It's you know. you know, and it's funny because Romero, when he did Night of the Living Dead, he didn't call them zombies originally. Right, they didn't get called were, zombies till dawn. The, there were ghouls, I think, was what he, mm-hmm. he referred them to as originally. Because zombies, traditionally, are not flesh-eating creatures. Zombies are mindless slaves that are forced to do the will of a zombie master of some kind. And, and right. traditionally, that would be to work on a plantation, which you can see more of in I Walked with a Zombie. That's perhaps more clear, although there are zombie plantation workers in, in White Zombie, too, and that's one of the, the really creepy elements. But the thing you lose with the flesh-eating zombies is you lose this sense of a person being controlled by another person. How creepy that is. I mean, yeah. you know, y- you hope... If I suddenly controlled you and your wife and your family, probably the best you could hope for was that you would be working picking cotton or tobacco or sugar cane rather than any of a myriad of other more terrible things that I might do if I had complete control over you. And uh, hopefully you get a sense that there are worse things perhaps than cutting sugar cane to happen to a zombie through this film. Whereas flesh eaters, they're just flesh eaters. You know, they're dead, and that's kind of scary because they're dead. But they're monsters, they're not you. Does that make sense? It does. And while you get some of the loss of identity, loss of self in both styles of zombie, it definitely feels a lot more malevolent with the voodoo style. And there's a real connection between these zombie stories from the 30s and 40s between or or connecting them to the loss of identity uh colonialism having your culture supplanted by something else i mean you can look into these original zombie stories and see so much that you don't get with the zombies that just want to eat you and that's not to say that i don't appreciate that as well i think romero's a master and i wouldn't spend five years doing mail order zombie if i didn't love that stuff (laughs) but you know i'm always hungry for more of the voodoo style the voodoo master you know the zombie stuff from this era i'm going to be talking about i walk with a zombie with paul McComas here in a couple of weeks so i mean i'm looking forward to any time i get a chance to get this kind of zombie in the pop culture or at least the the sub sub zombie culture right. <laughs> out there it's not the flash bang of the walking dead but it's a much creepier 
overtaking yeah. of of a person's identity, and you do that with Beaumont. I mean, in the movie you see it with Beaumont, but in the book, once what happens to Beaumont happens, that's not the last time you go back to that point of view. So you get to go with Beaumont as he's right. suffering the ultimate insult in a book right. called as, White as, Zombie. As he falls under Legendre's power, you kind of yeah. you stay with his point of view and get to hopefully some kind of creepier sense of what these zombies really are. And there's one chapter in the book that I worked really hard on that is from a zombie's point of view. And I had to do that it that way because the way the movie was cut was cutting back and forth between two characters' points of view. And if you're doing a modern storytelling in a book, you can't just do uh, 10 seconds with this person, 10 seconds with that person, 10 seconds with this person. You know, you can't be changing points of view every other paragraph. So the best way that I could figure to solve that was to do a certain chapter from the point of view of the zombie that was removed from the other characters during that chapter. And hopefully, that's not only a clever solution to a problem I had adapting it, but hopefully it also makes the book that much creepier. I think it worked. You know, as an impartial person who read the book and got to write the foreword, um, I think it worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, full disclosure here. Yeah. When, I was, when I was done with it, I said, Derek, you're uh, Mr. Zombie. Would you write, uh, would you write the foreword to this? And happily, Derek said yes. So I, I do want to call you to task or take you to task on one thing in the novel mm-hmm. that you did not explain from uh-huh. the movie. Oh, boy, I hope I'm not going to have to go to rewrites for this. So go. <laughs> No, I'm just kind of teasing. Fire away. <laughs> when the butler jumps in the water, he holds his nose in the film. <laughs> you didn't mention that in the book, man. I'm like, come on, there's got to be something. No, I, I actually like the way you handled it. So it's from a different point of view. He just kind of hears what happens. But, you yeah. Know, the, the funny thing is I had heard someone maybe mention that long time ago, but I actually didn't notice that until one of the last times that I was watching the film. And it's like, <laughs> wait a minute. Did he just, and he does, the zombies are carrying him to dump him into the river or uh, in the book, they're dumping him over a cliff or into the water that goes over the cliff. And as I was watching it, suddenly I noticed as this actor is going into the water, he does what, uh, what I always make fun of when my wife and I watch, uh, there's a show called Wipeout, which involves people getting knocked around and falling into the water a lot. Mm-hmm. And I always make fun of the people that are like holding their nose as they go into the water. And I'd say, well, someone's going to break their nose, pinching it closed with their fingers as they bounce off the giant red balls. <laughs> <laughs> and so suddenly I was watching the film and really paying attention to it and, and on the large screen. <laughs> and I went, wait a minute. <laughs> Help, I'm being carried to my death by zombies, but when they throw me into the water, I'm going to hold my nose. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I decided to leave that detail out. Okay. (laughs) I felt felt maybe it would have undercut the existential terror of being carried to your death by zombies. As is your right, sir. So. All right, so the book is out now. It came out at the end of October. How can people get it? It will be out in a print edition before the end of the year. But nice. the main way to get it now is to go to Amazon.com if you're a Kindle person and look up White Zombie and Stephen D. Sullivan, or to go to Smashwords, or to go to uh, Drive Through Fiction 
and look up again White Zombie Stephen D. Sullivan, and you can buy it for all e-reader formats at either Smashwords or Drive Through, and Smashwords distributes through Nook and the iStores, I think. So hopefully, if that's not up at all the venues you would normally shop at, hopefully if it's not up right now, it should be up in all venues very, very shortly. We'll make sure there's a link to your website in the show notes here because you've got a great landing page here that has a link to all of this. You know, the yes. Drive Through Fiction page, the Smashwords, the Amazon. You can get it straight just as the novel itself but then you also have an addition with the screenplay or the script that you created as well so you've got two different versions of the story i'm looking forward to reading through your scripting i've only read the novel so far well it's an interesting contrast it shows you both where it came from and it shows you the extra amount of work i did to bring this to the actual novel stage as well but People will get to compare and tr- contrast, and if you want the script with it, it's, at this point, uh, in ebook form, it's only a buck more. So uh, it'll be interesting to see which which one Monster Kids prefer to pick up, whether they want to see just the novelization or whether they want to see the novelization with the script so that they can compare the two. And, of course, if you're putting on a stage play of White Zombie and you want to use uh, my recreated script, you can get in touch with me and we can arrange that. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. I would love to see White Zombie on the stage. I think it lends itself to it. I think it would be a lot of fun. Absolutely. I, I think it definitely could make a nice stage production. Maybe someone will mount one. That would be there great. You go. There you go. That's, that's it. Let's make that happen, people. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> well, good. Hey, what's coming up next for you? Anything uh, we should keep our eyes out for? Well, obviously, every week I am releasing Daikaiju Attack, and we're up at, uh, well, I just released 19. I'm not sure exactly when this episode's going to come out, so we'll be at least to episode 19, uh, and a new one coming out of every week. We are halfway through that story now, so there's uh, still plenty to come. It's a good time to jump aboard. Uh, so that's ongoing, and I thought that was going to be the side project, and my other projects were, were going to be the main project, but <laughs> it's amazing how much time writing a weekly serial takes up. So in addition to that, I will be getting back to the much-promised Frost Harrow series, which is a, a series of uh, modern gothic horror novels. So the the shorthand version of that is that it is Dark Shadows meets Stephen King. Yes. <laughs> and and I, I say that with all the excitement of somebody who finally got around to watching Dark Shadows for the first time about a month or so ago. <laughs> I know. I'm so thrilled for you. It's oh, like, I'm thrilled for myself. Are you kidding me? Yeah, the original like, Dark Shadows is gold. Suddenly you've got 600 hours. <laughs> as if I needed more to watch. Right, yeah, yeah, as if I needed exactly. more to watch. <laughs> So Frost Harrow will be coming up soon. There is, uh, for Halloween, I also put out a Frost Harrow Flash story uh, on my website, so you can go there and read that. That's free and it's short, and uh, hopefully people will enjoy that. I've done two of those on my website so far, and uh, maybe they're becoming a Halloween tradition. I'm certainly kind of thinking they will. And they're more backstory than the actual novel will be. The actual novel is, again, going to be set in modern times and told in a, a modern gothic horror kind of way. And my copy of White Zombie had a Frost Harrow piece in the back of it, didn't it? It does. It yes. does. I almost forgot to mention that. It has a, a sneak preview of the first chapter and a half of the first Frost Harrow book. So go buy White Zombie check out Frost Harrow when you're done and see if it's you know something you're interested in and then go pick up Frost Harrow, right? Yep. That's how that yep. works. Yeah. yeah, and hopefully that'll all you know, hopefully the first Frost Harrow book will be out 
out within the next six months. But uh, that's been a long, strange trip too. So uh, I'm hoping, <laughs> hoping that's a promise I get to keep. Right on. Well, and if you really want more zombies from Stephen D. Sullivan, of course he's got Zombie Shark out there. So there's plenty of stuff yeah. out there for him to check, for people to and, check out. And zombies, werewolves, and unicorns. I thought that would be a funny juxtaposition to call a book, Zombies, Werewolves, and Unicorns, but I think the unicorns may be putting off the zombie crowd. <laughs> mm. I think they're going, oh, there's unicorns in this book. Why do I want to read that? Well, you want to read the unicorn book because they're getting killed by zombies, okay? Hey, I saw a cabin in the woods. I know unicorns can be bad news. There you go. <laughs> All right, well, people can find you online at sdsullivan.com or stevendsullivan.com. I recommend people go check out your stuff. I'm a fan. Thank I'm, you. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan, and I really appreciate you coming by Monster Kid Radio to talk about the latest project. I hope people check it out. I think they'll be uh, impressed. It's been a great pleasure to be here. I love talking to you. I love the show. I think the quickest way for anybody to find anything written by Stephen D. Sullivan is to go to his website, sdsullivan.com you can find out about Daikaiju Attack you can find out about his Frost Hero series you can find out about Tournament of Death you can find out about Daikaiju Attack you can find out about everything that he's got going on head over there, again there will be a link in the show notes if you need to find it later just go to monsterkidradio.net and clickety click there you go, you got it White Zombie is not the only zombie movie we're going to be talking about this year here on Monster Kid Radio. I'm happy to announce that we are working to get Paul McComas back on the show to talk about the classic 1940s zombie movie, I Walked with a Zombie. That will be coming up in the near future, as well as a return of Tom Beagler to talk about GCB movies. That's going to be a lot of fun as well. Just kind of do an overview of various monster movies that are kind of cheesy, but we love anyway. We're also going to have Scott and Tracy Morris back on the show in the near future to talk about, well, some of the Universal Monster movies. Can you believe that before last month, there are some classic monster movies that these two cats haven't seen yet? Well, that got rectified when they went to the Artcraft Theater for Monster Mania, which was a two-day event, which featured quite a few classic Universal Monster movies. Some of these are first-time views for these two, and they're going to tell us about that event and their experiences watching some of these movies for the very first time. Speaking of Scott and Tracy, I was fortunate enough to appear on episode 140 of Disney Indiana. That's their podcast. Scott and Tracy are longtime Disney fans. They've been producing Disney Indiana for five-plus years now, and I got to flex some muscles that I don't normally get to flex in the potosphere, when I talked a little bit about Marvel Comics, I used to be a big comic book reader growing up. And, well, there was a new video game that came out, Marvel Lego. And since Marvel now is owned by Disney, Scott and Tracy decided to cover the game on their podcast and invited me to come on to chat about it as well. So head on over there. It's DisneyIndiana.com, or there will be a link in the show notes to their website as well. I want to thank everybody for listening this week. I appreciate everybody's support and spreading the word, and I look forward to having you all back next week here on Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC, is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivations, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song El Elefante de Mocos. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio by permission of the band Waka Jawaka from their album, Introducing Waka Jawaka. Talk to you next week. (laughs) 